welcome to the Find Your Path podcast, a podcast dedicated to finding and defining your own unique path at work and in your career. I'm your host, career and leadership coach, Michelle Yu, and I'm here to show you what's possible in the realm of your career, which starts by unlocking the power of your mind. Life is way too short to be following someone else's path, and you should work on the things that you enjoy. Now let's dive in. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to have Dion on the Find Your Path podcast today. Me and Dion had met about a year ago through Bravely, and we're going to be having a conversation about diversity and inclusion and how that shows up in work. But by way of introduction, Dion is a strategist and coach that helps organizations operate in alignment to their values. He currently serves as Bravely's strategy lead for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, or shorthand DEIB. And Bravely is a business-to-business-to-consumer HR tech startup focused on democratizing access to individualized professional coaching and support for employees at work. In his role, Dion leads the process to define Bravely's value proposition in fostering DEIB, and he partners and advises functional leaders on how to build a company culture and operating mode that delivers that value repeatedly at scale. Before Bravely, Dion spearheaded DEIB strategic planning, learning and development and operations throughout the New York City nonprofit and public sector. And throughout his career, he has led with a passion for enhancing the power of people and communities to drive systemic change. Dion holds a bachelor's in human development and social relations from Kalamazoo College, and we're just super excited to have him on today. So welcome to the podcast, Dion. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's an honor to be here and be a part of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I know we've had a couple of conversations this year, but I'm excited to focus the attention on you because I feel like I've been on a couple of panels But now I wanted to open up the discussion to learn more about what you're doing, especially in the space that we're operating in now. Um, You know, over the last year, DEIB has been shown a spotlight and companies now are starting to take it more seriously to have an agenda around it. So, you know, before this trend started, though, you were in this space for a while. So tell me, how did you find your path? And what led you to DEI work? Yeah, and and it's it's a great question. And I feel like when I talk to other practitioners, they have a similar answer where they kind of just fell into it or they've like stumbled their way into the space. Uh, so in my college career, I went to Kalamazoo College, which is a predominantly white institution. So that in of itself was a culture shock to come from Brooklyn, New York, where I was in a neighborhood that was predominantly black to then go into a liberal arts college where I was in the minority within the uh, school. And it was it was a learning experience where I was trying to understand what does it mean to be me? How do I really understand what it means to be black within a space where there isn't a lot of people who look like me? 
And through that, I'd been uh, introduced into the sociology department, has studied and took a course in race and racism, had been involved on campus and a lot of the community uh, justice initiatives and really thought about how do I take what I've been learning in this small space within Kalamazoo and translate that back into New York, mm. right? Um, and through that, just really thinking about how do I find a field or a sector where I can continue to have these types of conversations about social justice, about race, about uh, class, about gender, about how do we leverage the power of community to be able to create change. And that led me into the nonprofit and the educational space because it felt like that's where I had experience in college and it felt like I met that need. Um, and had been doing community work through AmeriCorps in terms of building volunteer uh, engagement within nonprofit organizations, had done some work in the mayor's office of uh, volunteerism here in New York City to then help uh, spread those different initiatives around volunteer engagement and really thinking about community empowerment through a civic engagement and a public sector lens. But I really didn't get into like a traditional anti-racism or DEI role until 2015, where I had been the special projects coordinator within the Department of Education uh, for the Division of Teaching and Learning. And in that, I was on the deputy chancellor's team. So this would be like the divisional leader within the organization. And it just started with questions, quite frankly, where in the values that we had as an organization, or at least as a division, we had four values. There was responsibility. So we needed to be responsible for the outcomes of our students and our teachers within the classroom and within schools. There was interconnectedness where we're all in this together and that as a massive system, we can't succeed with silos. And mm -hmm. we had one around collaboration and we need to work together one-to-one -one and be effective. And then there was equity. And no one would ever say anything about it. It would be like, here are the three that we talk about all the time. And oh yeah, equity is on the list. So, you know, I'm, I'm coming from this background of having these types of conversations and wanting to engage in these discussions. So I started asking, you know, what do we mean when we say equity? What's the definition of the value? How are we measuring it? I don't see anybody talking about it. I don't see any goals connected to it. And in that particular case, I found it with a lot of work connected to culture and people. It is important, but not urgent. Mm -hmm. So for important, but not urgent work, it's like, yes, we need to solve for this. But no, we don't have the capacity to put the like energy and resources into it yet. So why don't you start working on this? And because I was asking questions, the response was, well, maybe we should do an event around it and start asking people how they would define equity within the division. Mm -hmm. Because I was already doing work around 
community building inside of the organization, it felt like the perfect uh, connection. So we ran an event, brought together, I wanna say it was about 35 people throughout the division, just whoever wanted to come and to have a conversation about what does equity mean? What type of equity are we talking about? That then led to further focus groups to then refine uh, the different areas that people were interested in, which we started looking at race and gender and sexual orientation and age. And then that later refined into, well, if you're already putting together um, trainings and, and professional learning for the division, why not just include this in there and start connecting with folks to then start doing learning? Mm-hmm. So then through learning came questions about goals and it just started continuing oh. to build where it's like, okay, you're doing, you're, you're asking the question, you're doing the community events around it within the division, you're leading the professional learning in terms of sourcing the vendors and then also like being able to get people in the spaces. I was also trying to do coalition building within the organization to then figure out what other divisions were doing and to get our division of human resources involved mm-hmm. in it to say, hey, we're trying this. Here's what we're learning from it. Maybe you could also do this for the system. And all of that started coming together to then um, get us to a point where I was starting to lead that work within the division where I was uh, spearheading our racial equity initiative, where it went from what is equity to now we should focus on race based on the predictable um, outcomes that we see. And race seemed to be one of the greatest predictors within our system. Mm -hmm. So now from there, it's like, okay, well, what is our racial equity strategy? How do we build our professional learning? How are we keeping all of the senior leaders engaged? in these types of conversations. And that was tough. I mean, none, none of this work around DEI is, is easy. Um, and I say that because DEI, anti-racism, social impact, what all the things you put in this bucket, it's really about pushing people to operate in a different way, mm-hmm. to think in a different way, to question the things that they understand to be true and to manage change from like a deeply personal and emotional space. And imagine now as a practitioner who is trying to make change and like push people towards change without the authority to actually do it. Yeah, And that's what a lot of DEI practitioners are are dealing with right now is that they are trying to catalyze institutional change in a way that we have often not seen it done. Because traditionally within organizations, when there's an institutional change, there is a leadership commitment to say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. If you don't get a part of it, you're gone, mm-hmm. right? And we don't see that same type of engagement because the people who often are tasked with doing that from the leadership level are also the ones who need to then change. Yes. So there is just a lot there. But from that work within teaching and learning, I then 
joined the Division of Human Resources to lead our implicit bias initiative within the Department of Education to then train about 7,000 people in learning around implicit bias and bias awareness until the pandemic came. Mm -hmm. And then once the pandemic came, it felt like, all right, this is an opportunity for me to transition. And as you'd been a part of conversations with Bravely, I'd also started in those conversations with Bravely as well. And it felt like a lot of clients wanted to have these discussions and Bravely didn't necessarily have the internal resources to be able to then manage it. Exactly as I said, important, but not necessarily urgent in that moment to have the skill set set already to then excuse me, manage it. So it was an opportunity for me to transition and join Bravely full time, um, in which I've been doing a lot of different types of things uh, within the organization. It's it's a very unique role um, and happy to happy to talk more about it. But I'm going to open it back up for any questions or thoughts. Yeah, that is, there's so much to unpack there. And you touched on so many different things. What really resonated or what really stood out was this a level of awareness. It's all about the level of like internal awareness one has to drive that change. And it starts with the individual um, and reconciling or understanding their own racial or ethnic or cultural diversity, which sounds like you had from going to a predominantly black into a predominantly white environment. Um, and then the second piece you touched on is like how to activate that almost like activating that awareness and that desire for change for other people, which sounds like that's the challenge of (laughs) getting them to both be aware of their own gaps and then also to want to do something about it. Is that, and and you said that that's what most DEI um, practitioners feel the challenge with, but would you say that's like, what, what is the most challenging piece there? Well, I would identify two. So the first I mentioned is that you're trying to change people's fundamental understanding of like being in a way that has not been incentivized. So companies often think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or diversity and inclusion, or whatever uh, amalgamation you put together in terms of the acronym as additive. You know, it's something that you do in order to make money. The business case around DEI is that if you bring in a greater sense of diversity within your organization, your company is going to be more successful, whether it be productivity standards or profit standards or emerging market standards. Um, Whereas I think of it as you are rectifying a wrong in which organizations were not built for diverse perspectives and diverse populations. They are underrepresented or we are underrepresented for a reason. And like we use underrepresented I think very haphazardly without establishing why folks or groups are underrepresented. And more apt is they're historically excluded Mm -hmm. from organizations because there was a time when specific groups were literally not allowed to be a part of these organizations. 
and we've built our entire understanding of what leadership is, what success is, what business ethics, what uh, strong organizational um, effectiveness looks like with this in mind, mm-hmm. right? With Without thinking about what it takes to then bring in these uh, underrepresented groups within the organization. So a lot of leaders are now just saying, you know, let's recruit them in without a strong understanding of what it means to then retain and grow and develop and support. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you bring people in, they're also leaving within the organization. So I would say that's the first. The second is as DEI practitioners, there is a sense of credibility needed as a DEI practitioner, which I think it's like, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse in which most DEI practitioners are of underrepresented identities. So now you as a practitioner are holding this underrepresented identity and are now trying to advocate for other people to then support others who look like you within the organization. So the things that you are trying to fight against, you are also experiencing it yourself. Mm -hmm. So you are trying to teach people about the dangers of microaggressions and you're facing microaggressions yourself. Yeah, You're trying to teach people the importance of self-care and you're also dealing with the stressors of doing this work. And I'll give you an example of this. Bravely, um, we have our PR firm that we work with where they were able to connect us with a reporter who wanted to do an article about primary and secondary trauma in relationship to the Derek Chauvin trials um, in connection to the George Floyd murder. And this reporter wanted to then talk about the psychic toll that watching the Derek Chauvin trial has on Black employees and to then talk to me or talk to a coach about the experience of supporting those Black employees. Now, as a practitioner, I'm thinking, one, you know, from a professional standpoint, great, we get a news placement, you know, we get Bravely's name out there. This is great. I want to be able to talk about how to support uh, Black employees during this time. As a Black person, I had made a decision not to watch the trial because I do. I didn't want to watch. I didn't watch the video when it first came out, right? I didn't watch any of that because I don't need to see someone die on the street to know that uh, police brutality and systemic racism is a thing. Right. We have hundreds of years of, of examples. So I don't need to watch this very specific example. But because I'm now being asked to uh, be a part of this interview, I go to watch it. And exactly the thing that I'm trying to now tell other uh, tell the reporter about to support other employees, I'm experiencing myself. Mm-hmm where I'm watching a 17 year old tell the story of George Floyd being murdered and they're doing a play-by-play on the video about what did you feel here when you saw Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck? And it's like, why would you ever wanna put a child through that? 
right? Um, and I, I have an understanding of like what a spectacle that all is to literally in front of the entire world have to relay and relive your trap or your trauma, excuse me, to everyone in order to hopefully get a conviction for this, um, for Derek Chauvin, which thankfully there was a conviction, but even with the video, the fact that there's an assumption that there may not be a conviction or there may not have been a conviction is a part of the issue. But all that to say, I still took the interview and even explained the meta-ness to the interviewer just to communicate like this is the issue. So you have a lot of DEI practitioners in organizations trying to push, excuse me, towards making this kind of institutional change with leadership who may not actually understand the extent to what uh, is needed in terms of this organizational or institutional change, who are not necessarily equipping the practitioners with the resources and the authority and the autonomy and the guidance that they need. And there's often a like, I'm just gonna move out of the way and like let you take it because there's this assumed like credibility needed to be a part of the, the space. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't wanna then say like, all right, every uh, majority overrepresented employee needs to be a part of um, DEI because I understand there is a, a sense of opportunity for underrepresented folks to be able to like get into corporate spaces. This is the way, right? This is one of the options that uh, folks have in order to be in more corporate spaces in which they wouldn't normally be a part of those spaces. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's definitely complex, but at the same time, because most uh, DEI practitioners are experiencing some of the same things that they're fighting against, or at least trying to operate against within the organization, there's a greater sense of personal investment. And I'll speak for myself. It feels like a no when working on DEI work is much more offensive to me than like if I was just doing a learning and development program, mm -hmm. right? Because it feels like there is the added weight of all of the people who normally wouldn't have these types of opportunities. I'm trying to represent them within the organization to make this a place where they would feel like they could be served, mm -hmm. right? And if someone doesn't agree with an approach or how I am trying to make change or it feels like someone's moving too slowly, it feels like a personal affront versus uh, if this was just like an IT uh, project or like a, a product um, launch that we're trying to work on. So it, it's, it feels much more emotional and much more connected because we're holding uh, these types of identities and experiencing the things that we're trying to move against. I feel that very strongly too. And I'm not even in the full DEI <laughs> work, right? So like, so for context, I, I'm a coach 
and a consultant, but I coach primarily underrepresented individuals. And that idea of having to hold space for what's going on while processing your own emotions, while driving change is a lot to unpack and a lot to handle. And I felt this personally during the you know, anti-Asian hate and the challenges of watching those videos while then helping my clients go through it. But now you're talking about doing that both on an individual level and then on an organizational level and all of the different complexities. So I can totally, completely resonate with that and the notion of you know, it, it's like a fine line of how to both care for yourself and make sure you're, you're satisfying your yourself and what you need, but then also like not burning out in the process. Because I, I think I remember one of our conversations, I think maybe it was Vanessa who said like, it's a long, we're, we're not going to solve it overnight. The systemic change isn't going to solve overnight yet. At, right yeah. now, it seems like such a critical um, the last year seems like such a critical year to get as much change and as much awareness and advocacy in. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, how do you, how do you fight this for the long <laughs> run? Like it's, it's going to be a marathon race. Right? Like, how does one, if they want to get into this work, like what advice do you have? Because I would also say from the conversations that I've had, I know people are, wanting to do something about it, whether they're as an ally or whether they're underrepresented themselves and they want to do some, create, create more awareness within their community. But what advice would you have for someone that wants to get involved, but maybe not become a full DEI practitioner, but wants to get involved in DEI in some way? Don't. No, (laughs) no, I'm, and, and I, and, um, in prepping for this conversation, I was sharing with you, I feel like I'm all over the place because I've been having these same discussions with myself and with other coaches and with mentors and with my therapist about how do I find a more healthy and sustainable way to do this work? Mm-hmm. Because I noticed a shift in my health and like my connection to other people when I started doing DEI work full time, where it felt like in an organization, as I mentioned, it it feels more personal and it feels more disruptive when there are challenges at work when it comes to this, because there is that personal connection to it. So I would often see myself as like fighting against my own leadership in order to make things happen or feeling like I'm the enforcer within an organization where in uh, something like hiring, when we're trying to diversify the candidate pools and someone is now saying, you know, we need to do referrals and I wanna refer all of these white candidates. If I'm not there, I feel like that's gonna pass when, if we're trying to diversify the candidate pool, we have to be mindful about how referrals are being made. So not to say you can't refer any white staff, but if we're trying to set the goal of diversifying the candidate pool, if we have an overrepresentation of white people in the org, why would you continue to Mm -hmm. uh, refer in that way, right? So it's like, 
and and also like navigating the law around that right because you can't also just say i'm only gonna hire people of color right because you want to be able to hire the best uh talent that you can can find who is who's best suited for the roles that you have so it is when when you talk about a tightrope it is a very um it is a very interesting tightrope i would say for advice two things one find your avenues for decompression and a sense of joy finding joy is a a form of resistance for me and like as a form of just care that i need to be able to practice so i watch things like married at first sight or i may watch you know too hot to handle on netflix so i i might watch uh different anime shows to be able to to um disconnect but just to be really clear about what that uh work-life balance is going to be for you and um because as you mentioned you know you were experiencing it yourself also working with clients trying to help them experience it or process their experience and then also your your own personal life and work world and during the summer of 2020 it felt like at work i was trying to talk to people at bravely i was trying to have those conversations both inside of the organization and with employees and then in my personal life i had uh friends wanting to have these types of conversations and it felt like there was no escape because i would go to work have to have these conversations about race i would go to bravely have to speak about my experience with race i would go connect with the employee on a call to then talk about their experience with race and then i would go on social media and read every single uh anti-racism post or like every uh every diatribe or every monologue about uh, anti-racism and systemic uh, racism and police brutality. And it just felt overwhelming, like there was no escape. So the second piece to that outside of just finding your sense of joy is being just really clear about, do you need to do this in your everyday work or can this be something you do on the side? I don't think everyone has to be like a, a traditional DEI practitioner in order to make change within the organization. Mm -hmm. There are other ways that you can do it. And I honestly feel like if you are someone with a DEI lens within your functional area, it might actually be more impactful than being a DEI practitioner within an organization because they're not necessarily expecting you to come in with the types of questions uh, that you're going to come in with, or um, you have a greater sense of content expertise within the specific function. So as an example, in Bravely, we have, uh, we have the engineering department. Now, from the outside, I can tell our head of engineering, hey, we need to think about accessibility. But I can't necessarily go to him and then say, all right, this is how accessibility needs to be done because I'm not an engineer and I don't have expertise around accessibility. Excuse me, I know it's important and I know we need to prioritize it to make sure that we're able to reach as many users as we possibly can. 
Um, but I don't have content and expertise in accessibility. Whereas if there is someone who is an engineer who has this mindset, they could then push from the inside to say, hey, this is important or be able to work with others, um, maybe work with your DEI practitioners to then collaborate and then make that kind of push to then say, accessibility is important. This is how we do it within the function. Let's figure out the resources that we need to get it done. Mm -hmm. um, because what is missing right now is the functional expertise to then make some of the ask uh, happen, right? Um, and normally, at least in my own experience, I am bringing in like a generalist lens to um, what needs to be done within functions and need someone to be more specialized within these different areas. And I kind of connected to like the HR world in which you have an HR generalist and then you have someone in the different specialized HR functions like a compensation and benefits or mm -hmm. a um, employee relations where like a business partner can tell you generally like here is how you should be thinking about comp, but then like the compensation department is gonna be the one that tells you how to then do it across the organization. Mm -hmm. um, so figure out, do you need to do this as your full-time job? There may be opportunities to also just, uh, to work on some of these things in your personal life, whether it be through community, volunteering or donating or, or supporting really just being mindful about like, what is your, um, what's your exit plan, right? When it comes to being able to decompress, because if you don't have a way to then get a sense of separation, it's going to be, you're, you're not going to last in the marathon. Mm -hmm. You're going to burn out. And um, from experience as someone who is like having these conversations often about is DEI even a place uh, to be long-term? Because I also recognize some of the challenges with being a DEI practitioner long-term. Um, does it make sense to then go into a functional area instead and keep this lens or stay in an in a external or like a, I guess it is external, um, being in a DEI practitioner uh, lane as well. So a lot of different things there, but definitely being mindful about what are your avenues for decompression and being mindful about what your balance is so that you're not just in this work all the time. Because exactly as Vanessa mentioned, like this work has been, or the, the issues that we're talking about have been designed within the way that our country and, and the way in which our economic systems globally have been run. So it's it's not going to be that one day in implicit bias training that's going to change the entire world, um, but it's going to be a connection and a collection of many, many, many people and systems to recognize that the way that we are working is not working and the way that we are existing is not beneficial. And unless we can get an incentive or reward system to make that kind of change, I don't know if we'll be able to make that change yet. So a lot there, but I'll, I'll pause for you. Yeah. 
I love that idea of what you're saying, having a functional, almost sounds like an accountability person to make sure that lens is added. And I speak with coaching clients who are passionate about DEI in their space, whether it be in finance or they're in, yeah, like you said, engineering, but having them as like that voice to represent or to help give that perspective but they often also have they encounter the same struggles of like yeah on a different lens just on in, even in, within their team so but i i love that idea and and have i have a question for you in then let's oh. say in an ideal world you mm-hmm. could design an employer or an organization from the ground up, like the most, <laughs> the most, um, let's say conscious, like, you know, awakened conscious organization, what would that look like? Could you describe what you would see differently oh, done? Oh in Like, how would that di- look different if you, if there was a company and a founder or an organization that really, really wanted DEI at the forefront of their organization? Yeah, that's such a, that is such an interesting question, right? Um, Because I I wonder about these same things in a startup. Like, are there ways that we can build a more humane and more conscious tech organization? Um, Part of me is like, it's a cop, it feels like a cop out where there are things that are antithetical to capitalism within DEI. So like, can you run a DEI uh, or can you run a company that is conscious about what it needs to do without money, right? Because there are challenges across each of the sectors when it comes to money and how money is allocated. So when you're thinking about the nonprofit sector, right? There's often a connection around deep mission drive but not necessarily the resources to be able to um, to make those things happen. And often the capital that then comes into nonprofits come from philanthropy or from government um, or from private donors, which then have their own interest um, in terms of how that is supposed to be translated, which often are not necessarily aligned or best suited for what the organization needs. Um, And, the tech world that comes through investors and venture capital in terms of being able to make decisions that focus on growth at all cost, rather than thinking about the human uh, impact of what growth at all cost means, right? So you have investors putting in millions of dollars within an organization expecting to get that returned in a certain time frame and a certain amount right? Um, And the organization is responsible to then turn that back. Um, And then for the uh, public sector, you have taxes in terms of how people are um, spending their money in terms of support of the public space. You also have the politicians who are then driving where the resources are going. Um, So it's hard. It's definitely hard. I would say if I was to try to go through this thought experiment, I would say DEI is a, a, a different way of understanding the way that business works. So when you're building this business, I think you have to be mindful that 
the traditional standards and the traditional playbooks of creating businesses have not been built with uh, bringing in DEI um, into it. So that has to be like a core value of yours as a founder and that you're willing to focus on the risk uh, associated with prioritizing human costs over like the financial cost, right? And whether that is bootstrapping, right? And then there's even a question of who has the access to capital to bootstrap. But if you're able to prioritize building an organization where you don't necessarily have as many investors who are looking for that immediate return, um, one one space if folks are cu curious about this i've been looking more into it it's called zebras unite um which is around conscious capitalism have you heard about this mm -hmm. yeah so to be able to think about what does it look like for the antithesis of a unicorn right um in which unicorns often um come in and they're disruptive and they just like you know, tear stuff up and make a lot of money and value for their investors, but not necessarily thinking about what the cost is for the industry or for the consumer long term. Um, an example of this is now with the rising cost in uh, like Ubers and Lyfts and in a lot of these companies in which the prices were artificially low in order to disrupt the uh, the taxi uh, industry, and now that the taxi industry has been disrupted, prices are going to start going back up because you can't keep pricing artificially low at that level, right? So yeah, we were able to generate billions of dollars for these uh, investors, but like at what cost? And what does that mean for uh, taxi drivers who uh, spent millions of dollars on medallions? Um, I feel like I'm all over the place. But anyway, um, in terms of building the org, you would need to have that core value. You would need to find a funding source that isn't focused on immediate returns. Um, you would need to create and, and bring on an organizational designer. And I say this, I'm biased. I'm really interested in organizational design, but to be able to bring in excuse me, an organizational designer from the forefront and like bring in an HR team from the forefront to be able to say, this is what the organization is going to look like. Um, right now, again, because of the immediacy and the urgency of returns, organizations are prioritizing bringing in the growth and building a growth engine before building in infrastructure about keeping the organization whole. Um, and I, I continue to see that as the challenge because you need to be able to best balance them both to be able to say, yes, we're able to maintain a profitable business, but we also have a culture that's strong that we're able to retain talent where we're not continually um, seeing high rates of attrition. Um, so I, I don't envy founders or envy um, people who are building organizations. I know it's really tough and it's even the work that I'm trying to do now and bravely and um, thinking through what it would look like for us to be a humane tech organization. 
under the constraints that we're under, knowing that we are uh, are funded by venture capitalists, knowing that we are a uh, software as a service provider that has a traditional playbook on growing as a uh, tech company, knowing that we're business to business to consumer, um, understanding all of those constraints, like how can we be the best version that we can be under all of that, which it is what we talk about internally as finding the third way, because we're trying to now balance how do you scale fast, but also be people first. And both are, if you, if you skew too far away on either side, you're going to be in trouble in terms of building a profitable business for VCs versus building a company that aligns with the products and the vision that we're trying to create. So we're trying to find it. Um, I, I think it's just really tough, quite frankly. Absolutely. Yeah. You make such a fascinating point. And this is what I think all the time too, is like human capital versus the finance, the money and all of that. And I don't know if there's enough research out there to show like, what are the financial benefits of having diverse teams? Like the more, and I wonder if that would help sway, sway people to focus more on that in the beginning, not just like creating good cultures and sustainable practices, but like how it can benefit them financially too, if they designed it from the get-go. And I, I'm, always fascinated by that because it in my mind I'm, maybe I'm an idealist but thinking like it can't just be an either or there has to be some sort of um, fusion of both but I personally haven't figured it out yeah I mean there there are companies under the B Corp uh, the B corporation space who are trying to figure out this double bottom line. Um, in terms of measuring both purpose and profit together. Um, the research showing that diverse teams increases performance and increases financial success is out there. I think it's really just a, a question of one, um, because even when you think of diversity as a, a function, you have to think about like, the the implications of bringing in people who are underrepresented going into a space that is homogenous and like what are what does that even say right about like uh the value of people who are diverse right um and then also thinking about like even the language even the phrase you use as human capital Right, like that in of itself has certain implications in terms of how we think about the value of people within an organization. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. I I would love to. Yeah, it's 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 figuring out what is the right case, whether it be the business case from like a. If you bring in more diversity within the organization, you have more productive teams or you have greater innovation and greater creativity. There's the emerging market segment where if you have a greater sense of representation within the organization, you're gonna be better positioned to then support um, 
the emerging markets for underrepresented or marginalized communities and thinking about the buying power there from like a product and from a um, marketing perspective. Um, there, the cases are there. I feel like people have been trying to articulate a business case for the last 60 years. Uh, but really, when you even think about DNI, like it all came out of the affirmative action space, where it's really just thinking about, you know, we historically excluded and we now have to rectify that. And diversity was the spinoff um, in response to that to say, we are going to, um, it, it's all about diversity. It's all about being able to bring in different types of people within an org and like taking a more positive lens to basically litigation prevention where um, a lot of diversity trainings started out as just ways to not get sued. So it's like we, we started the industry from a very peculiar space and now are trying to morph it into something that can be transformational. And in, in the same way that you mentioned your idealist, I can also uh, see some of the benefits of that. I'm just nervous, quite frankly. Um, because even now in 2021, I'm seeing some of the slowdown, or at least I'm seeing some of the, uh, there's, there's not that same sense of like passion and fire um, around this work as you would imagine from when we saw in the summer of 2020, where a lot of companies were being held accountable and responsible to this work. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of hiring going on though. There's a lot of, <laughs> so if people want to be a part of uh, the DEI world, this is definitely the time. I'm also just mindful that the chief diversity officer retention rate on average is three years. So I'm curious to see what 2023 is gonna look like when all those hires that companies started to make are gonna start recycling out. Um, and, and seeing how that shifts in terms of the market. Mm, fascinating. Those are such great perspectives that, yeah, I, I thank you for sharing all of these things to consider for people wanting to go in the field, for organizations that want to be more conscious of DEI efforts, for advice for people that want to jump into the space. There's so much good stuff there to unpack. Have um, a couple more questions resources. What are some resources that you find most helpful in this space? Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, some of the top of my head. So in terms of what I mentioned about the uh, DEI or diversity and inclusion industry coming away from affirmative action, I would say the book uh, Diversity Inc. by Pamela Newkirk is a really interesting expose about how the diversity and inclusion world even came to be um, and some of the challenges in terms of what we've seen over the past 50, 60 years uh, within the work world in terms of how companies have been making the same promises since the 1960s and 70s around diversifying and haven't necessarily made the traction on it. 
Um, let's see, that's one book. I would say social media is a huge, uh, a huge space to be able to learn from different practitioners and different, uh, different scholars, depending on what lens you're trying to go into. Since uh, there, there are some, there are some practitioners who are just like traditional DEI. So I would say like a Michelle Kim on um, from the Awaken organization, Lily Zhang, they are spot on with all the things that they write on LinkedIn. I'm like a huge fan of them. Um, so those are the, those are two people that I follow and, and check out. And then from there, you can then start to see who's in that network, who's connected, and then start to follow from there. Um, watching documentaries, like just being able to think through what the education process is for yourself um, and to just start somewhere. I think the, the, world, is, the world of DEI can feel so um, overwhelming. Like I've been trying to wrap my head around what is an effective DEI 101 session look like? Because there are so many different entry points into DEI. So like I could be focused on racial justice. You could be focused on gender justice. Another person could be focused on disability justice. And we're all considered DEI practitioners. And there isn't or there hasn't been a just standardization across the field yet. I think there's just a lot of stuff to cover, but I would say start where it's most of interest to you. Um, for people who are of uh, marginalized identities, I think it would make sense to start in a space that uh, you are marginalized in. So if you're thinking about race, if you're thinking about gender, if you're thinking about sexual orientation, to be able to think about like, what is the history of uh, that within the specific space that you're in or the specific society that you're in, depending on where you live geographically. Um, and then going from there to be able to think about, you know, I started in race, let me go into sexual orientation or let me go into religion or let me go into socioeconomic status. There's, there's just, a, a, it's a there's a plethora of, um, resources out there and if you want to host any or, or share any I can pull things together that may be helpful for listeners as well yeah yeah thank you I have one thing that came to mind a resource that was really helpful for me a book that I read um called my grandmother's hands yes that book like I feel like it really changed like it was like the healing process to get over that that burnout process. Um, but that one, I totally recommend that book for anyone that's looking to do some of their own racialized healing. It was a really, really fantastic book to start. Awesome. Well, thanks Dion for all of your insights, all of your wisdom. Uh, there's so much to unpack there and just for giving us the insight into what this world looks like and the different considerations someone should be looking at. If listeners want to get in touch with you, how can they find you? Yeah, so I am on LinkedIn. So if folks want to connect with me, they can do that. Uh, you can find me at Dion J. 
Dion, D-I-O-N, J, Bullock, B-U-L-L-O-C-K. Um, my LinkedIn link is LinkedIn slash N slash Dion or D Bullock NYC. Um, so I can share that. I'm on Twitter, but not really on there. So LinkedIn is the best place to then find me. Um, happy to talk about DEI work, happy to talk about Bravely, happy to talk about education, happy to talk about anything um, connected to these worlds. Awesome. Thanks, Dion, for have for being on the show today. Appreciate your time Thanks. and all your thank interest. you for having me. Thanks. Thanks for joining me today. If you are loving what you're hearing, there are a few ways you can work with me. Head to www.michellekyu.com to learn more about my coaching services or follow me on Instagram at mkyucoaching for more career, leadership, and business